Thank you. No, good to see everybody. All right. Hey, thanks for all coming. Um, they say history repeats, and I think as we start to um, look and think about these Scottish Covenanters, I think we will start to see some parallels with, with things going on in our day and age and um, things that were um, going on and influencing uh, times and events in, in their time as well. Um, but I think today as I talk, um, almost nothing is original. Everything is heavily taken from um, these two volumes from Banner of Truth. So I'm not going to say, uh, quote, 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 all the way through. Everything is almost just a string of um, information that's come out of these two books. And the, um, the other book I have up here is my Bible, and I'm just putting it here for looks, really. <laughs> and, I, and I feel a little guilty, because usually I would ask you to open your Bibles and turn to a passage of Scripture, but we are, I guess, look, as a, as a conference, there's opportunity to uh, look at different things and consider different things. So we are um, considering more of church history today, um, looking at these Scottish Covenanters. And they had this little... Um, you know, I've heard one or two things about them before, and I didn't know much about them, so it was a real adventure to um, pick up those books and read, um, and it was probably one of the biggest reading projects I've had for a single message, and I think you've got about 1%, and it's all jammed in there, so hopefully it makes some sense to you, but um, we'll start having a look at who these uh, Scottish Covenanters are, but they, they follow the progress and persecution of evangelical Christianity in Scotland from the year 1560 um, to 1689, which, and you can think even 1689, that's the, um, that we can think that London Baptist Confession, that was the year of that, and 1560 is just after um, the Reformation. So it's from 1560 to 1689. And what we're going to see, the main, the main central um, cause was that during that era, sacred and civil affairs were much intermingled. And so there's a lot of trouble and strife that came because the civil and the um, spiritual spheres were intermingled. And, and, and the result of that is what we see playing out um, with these um, Scottish Reformed Christians. But before we look at that, there was um, a comment. I was given a book. I'm not sure if Chris Baines is here, but he gave me a book a, a week or two back just to have a look at. And um, it was called When to Disobey, Case Studies in Tyranny, Insurrection, and obedience to God. It was written by a, a Swiss reform pastor. He lived from 1511 to 1571. Um, but he wrote a little comment, or it was really just on one of those comments on the back cover of the book. And it really got my attention. And it said, when civil governments become tyrants, Christians are forced to make decisions. And so before we start, I think we need to let that, that comment just sink in a little bit. When civil governments become tyrants... That's when Christians are forced to make decisions. And so the only reason we're even considering civil disobedience, and I'm not promoting it, by the way, as well, we're just, as, as we're thinking about those things, it's because the actions of our government have forced us to ask those questions. And so the church only ever considers this question in times of tyranny, oppression, or civil overreach into the matters of the church. And so we, we shouldn't be ignorant of the times in which we live, because whether we like it or not, this is the mood and the direction of the, the world that's around us. And so we're only, as I said, only asking these questions because the political environment around us is forcing us to actually stop and consider, should we obey, should we not obey? 
Um, but I want to introduce some ideas to you today about a, a very important Christian doctrine. Uh, it's one that in times of freedom the church tends to neglect, and it's in times of persecution it's a doctrine that the church holds very dear. And so it's the doctrine of the headship of Jesus Christ over his church. And, and to give you a small sense of what I, I mean when, when I say that, there's a certain meaning and you, you best feel it rather than know it in your head. Um, is, is that's what we're going to think about as we look at these Scottish covenanters and who they were and, and what they did. Um, and so in 1625, if you take your mind back, almost 400 years ago, the year 1625, um, the Scots knew what it was like to live both under the tyrannical monarchies and the dark dictatorship of Roman Catholicism. So they had just come out of that. The Reformation had burst that tyrannical system apart, and they enjoyed a lot of freedom, and the Protestants were obviously able to enjoy and believe and worship according to the word of God. Um, and so they knew what it was like to live under that, and they knew what it was like to live in the glorious religious freedom that flooded Scotland after the Pro Protestant Reformation. And, uh, and that was after the passionate and thundering gospel preaching of men that you would have heard of, like John Knox. So John Knox was a Scottish reformer. And so he was just prior to, um, I guess, a generation before these Scottish covenanters. But at this time, the Reformed churches had been established, uh, and they drew a very clear line in the sand. And I think as we think through things, we're not so sure. But they drew a very clear line in the sand between the civil and the religious spheres of their society. Um, they distinguished between the matters of the church and the matters of the state. And so on the one side, the church was to be governed and ruled by Christ through his word as the only rule and authority in matters of faith and practice and through the delegated authority of biblical leadership. So in their case, it was the Presbyterian structure. Uh, and, and in our case, or for some of us, it would be through biblical eldership. Um, but they saw the, the government, there was God at the top, and there was the, the civil or governing authorities, the civil matters, and then Next to them was the church, and they saw that as the Presbyterian, which was a structural hierarchy of the Presbyterian church that ruled and governed in the, in the church sphere. So they had a very clear um, distinction that they made. Um, so yes, yeah, so on the one side, there was the church ruled by Christ through his word as the only rule of authority and faith and practice um, and through the, the church leadership, in their case, the presbytery. On the other side stood the civil authorities who were to govern all matters that related to the state. And the covenanting Scots would have looked at Romans 13 verse 1 to 7, which, which sets out where we are to be obedient to governing authorities. They would have looked at that. And in every civil matter, they were willing to submit to the king's authority. So they were submissive. They did obey the governing authorities as the Bible dictates, as long as it did, it did not extend to things spiritual. That was their line in the sand. And so otherwise, their loyalty um, to the civil majesty obedient in all civil matters. But in 1625, King Charles I became king. And it was written that he had a crooked nature under his fair exterior. And, and we could say he wanted to appear kind in outward appearance, but he disguised his true and wicked intentions, as many politicians seem to do. He considered the Scots to be, he called them rude hyperboreans. And you, I think you understand what a Berean is in the Bible. But 
um, they would understand that as being a, an extreme right, uh, literal, Bible-believing fundamentalist, something to that state. So um, he considered them rude Hyperboreans, and he was uh, crazed on the subject of royal absolutism, that he was, had absolute authority over the church and the state. He would be a king that was... Um, they believed in, there was two concepts that sort of flew around. One was Lex Rex and one was Rex Lex. And so it means the king is law or the law is king. And so beginning um, before what happens through these uh, Scottish covenanters, the king is law and above the law and just like a potentate determining everything that happens. And afterwards, we'll see a revolution at the end where we'll start to see the political environment where we live in, where everybody lives under the law, and, and parliament was held up as, as the authority rather than, than an individual king. But anyway, um, um, but yeah, but what he desired, what, or he, he was crazed on the subject of royal absolutism and, and the project of annihilating Purit, Puritan and Presbyterian dissent. Uh, he desired, in a word, uniformity. Uh, he wanted every belief and everything to be the same. He didn't want toleration of different sects and different things. Uniformity, if you imagine uniformity, all being the same belief, the same morality, the same everything, and toleration, that they're just mutually exclusive. They're like oil and water and you can't mix them together. Um, and so you can't have individual views mixing with, with a, a, a potentate or king that's trying to enforce top-down uh, uniformity. And we start to see some clear parallels when we think about our government um, that has a goal of a secular moral uniformity. And you'll be familiar as I say this because the political left uh, are currently demanding no religious exceptions regarding things like the LGBTQ movement. Uh, it's something that we have to accept. Um, they will cancel conservative views. They'll make employment in public offices uh, untenable, and they demand subscription to their morality, and I say without religious exception. And I say that because if you were to look even with Mad and I've been looking at the Green Party in New Zealand and some of their advertising, they've recently um, demanded um, regarding the, there's, there's the proposed or promised really conversion therapy bill that's coming, um, the Green Party is demanding no religious exceptions. They want it to be enforced with no room for tolerance. And so that's that um, same attitude of uniformity that, that was being pushed onto a society. And so we've, we're starting to feel that uh, pressure from, from even our government. But for several years, so jumping back in your minds to Scotland, um, so it didn't, didn't happen all at once, but for several years, little by little, uh, King Charles passed various legislation and made tweaks to policy in small degrees, but it was in a purposeful direction. And it slowly but surely began to erode the clear distinction between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. And so as the, as the government began to meddle in church affairs, what was notable was that the people, and I read the word in, in the books here, the people became confused and that's exactly how we feel, isn't it? Like, how do we act? What do we do? We've never experienced this before. Some people think that. Some people think this. We're mixed up. We're learning. We're not used to it. And so and the same happened in their day. When the church started to interfere in um, ecclesiastical matters, the people became confused. So their natural instinct was to submit to governing authorities, just like ours is. 
And at first, people held different views on what to do, which is just like we do now. Uh, and so when the government starts to tell us, for example, when and if and how many people can go to church, it does cause all sorts of confusion. And just like our day in, in Scotland, um, there was a growing suspicion of leaders, but no exact proof. And I thought that, that resonated with me as well. Um, they just sensed that something was not quite right. There was uh, unquestionably significant change taking place, but no one could really put their finger on exactly what was happening and what the king's real motives were. Because you can't, when they're not publicly saying it, you just don't know. And so you could imagine all sorts of uh, conspiracy theories, as it were, were flying around. Um, they could sense something, but they couldn't quite say. Um, and so as this played out, there were two types of people that gave two types of responses. And again, I found this fascinating um, because I think we see this playing out in our own country as well. Some Scots uh, contemplated evil days. And so you might say that they were somewhat paranoid and were overly worried, speculating about the king's intentions. And then there were those who didn't think much of the small but subtle changes that were taking place. Um, they thought life would just continue much as it was. Don't make a big deal of it. It's just a little thing. It's not a big thing. It's going to be okay. And so that was, that was two views then, and I think that uh, represents two views now. Um, but what history in this situation would teach us, and that's not necessarily a rule for what's going to happen for us, but when we look at this example, what history would teach us is that the more moderate-minded men conformed. Um, and so they accepted the small and gradual changes as they happened. So it's like the frog getting boiled in the pot. They accepted, and, and, and it was just a little thing. It was just a little thing, and they, they eventually went all the way. And so as history would unfold, um, I want you to take note that the faithful pastors proved to be those who warned their flocks of the impeding danger. Um, and as increasing policy was made to encroach on the, the government of the church, it needs to be noted as well um, that it was the, the author noted here that Parliament, it was Parliament that laid the foundation for what the, he called the irreconcilable schism. Because the policy was made, they put something in place. Like I said, toleration and uniformity just simply cannot coexist together. And so the policy was put in cause, the irreconcilable uh, differences that would play out. And, and as the agitation of the church continued, and I, and I think we feel like that a little bit, um, some of us might feel a little agitated as, as government and policy and, and things that seem to have an anti-Christian uh, tendency sort of get more and more influencing in our society. Um, as the agitation of the church continued, it said many were ripening for a revolt. And I, and I thought that's a beautiful picture because you imagine the tree, uh, not all of the fruit are just perfectly ripe all at the same time. You know, there's just one or two are ripe first, and, and slowly the whole, the whole body gets to the same point and sees and believes the same things. And so um, many were ripening for a revolt. And in 1629, King Charles gave the church a new liturgy. And so the liturgy, um, is, is we, we could, you could think in a basic sense, is like an order of service, where, you know, what you're going to sing, what you, what, what's going to be preached, what's going to be taught, what prayers are going to be included in the church service. Um, so he gave the church a new liturgy, and, and progressively, and it, and it eventually played out about eight years afterwards. So again, he doesn't force it all at once. These are just slow-cooking little changes. 
1637, it eventually became mandatory. So first it was optional, then it's mandatory. Um, it became mandatory for all churches, schools, and families to use. And so things like extemporaneous prayers were forbidden. And so to explain that, if I was to shut my eyes now and, and just pray out of my own heart and come up with words that I desired to pray, that would be illegal in the church. You could only, um, you could only use prayers at church, could only be those from the prayer book, written in the prayer book. Uh, kneeling in communion was enforced, and that triggered their minds because they'd just come out of the Reformation, and those things just smelt like uh, popery or Catholicism. And they were told, uh, this is not, this is a Protestant church, but we want you to just do these sort of Catholic practices, but it's still a Protestant church. And so it just smelt bad. It didn't, it didn't feel good. Um, Words from the Apocrypha were now to be read in so-called Protestant churches. And so the Apocrypha is extra-biblical that the Catholic Church would use. It's, it's not the Word of God. It's not in the 66 books of the Bible. Um, they were to be read in churches. And the Lord's Supper was even celebrated at an altar. And I'm not going to go into explaining that, but it's blasphemous. Uh, Christ has died and as once for all sacrifice. And we don't have an altar in a church. We may have the Lord's table but we have no place for making any more sacrifices or improving on the work that Christ is, has done. But those were the things that were contained in this um, prayer book that the king was now making mandatory. And so many other prescribed forms of worship were enforced on the church. I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg to give you some sense of how offensive that would be to them. So this small book was the match that eventually set two kingdoms on fire. To the people of Scotland, the prayer book was considered an idol and a memorial of tyranny. Um, but over many years, agitation had grown until there was a rapid spread of revolutionary spirit and wild enthusiasm passed like an irresistible tide over Scotland. And in a sentence, we could say it got to the point where the government had gone too far. And so on Sabbath morning, on the 23rd of July, 1637, that was the date that was uh, fixed for the, uh, sorry, the inauguration of the new service book. And in those days, many took um, stools to church, so they wouldn't have seats like we have down here. They'd bring a little wooden stool. Um, they brought uh, into one particular church and began to read from the prayer book. Uh, the author says, murmurs were heard. Soon a barbarous, barbarous, I still don't know how to pronounce this word. It's really bad. Barbarous tumult <laughs> began. Women wept, men shouted, serving maids clapped their hands, and others yelled the reader down. So it was, this was, person was reading from this prayer book for the first time. And one bold lady by the name of Jenny Geddes, who's been immortalized in Scottish history, picked up her stool and threw it at the reader. And I think... <laughs> And I was like, I love these Scottish ladies. We need, we need more of them. And I think if you read the whole story, I think a, a whole fleet of these ladies actually grabbed him, dragged him, and stripped his clothes and kicked him right out of the church. And so they were, we need some more Scottish ladies. <laughs> Excuse me. But, um, but as you can imagine, that was one church, and there were similar scenes in many churches at the reading of the new liturgy all around Scotland in these these uh, wonderful reformed churches, they had this imposed from their government on them. But for the next 50 years, a bloody massacre of... Um, oh, 
It's like when you go to a movie, I, I get stuck at this point every time. You know, the movie's really sad and your wife's looking at you and you're like trying to tear up. But there was, it's not me, I've been cutting onions, you know. But they, um, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to get through this. But they, um, but it was, 50 years were terrible. The next 50 years of the, um, what was inflicted on God's people. But yeah, as I mentioned, the, um, the, the people unreservedly submitted to what they believed in Romans verse, uh, chapter 13. They, they still had a, a, an attitude of submitting um, to the government, but they chose rather to, uh, to suffer than sin. I think I mentioned this on Sunday, and I think I got stuck at the same point, but they... Um, well, they, they chose that because the, uh, when the authority um, encroached into the spiritual sphere of the line that had just been crossed, and so they would not allow um, the unholy to profane their free gathering and worship of God, um, they would continue to gather even though the gatherings were deemed illegal. So they, they literally banned, uh, you had to go to these state-sanctioned churches um, you had to read and use these state-sanctioned liturgies. Uh, and so they started to gather, just like they're doing in Canada. Um, they started to gather um, in the fields and in the hills, and they were called con- conventicles, um, which means that they were... Illig- uh, it's a word that means they were illegal religious gatherings. They were unsanctioned unsanc- uh, religious. Whether we like to acknowledge it or not, as I mentioned, there are a growing number of conventicles, even this very Lord's Day, uh, in so-called free and democratic countries like Canada, uh, Australia. We've had some in New Zealand uh, and England and the United States. So all of those countries that, um, that were kind of, I guess, were, were downstream of the United Kingdom and the political situation that, that's sort of unfolding here is directly um, related. Um, but this is not a, a... So it's not really a matter of, of if this sort of thing could possibly happen in our day and age. Uh, it's already happening. Um, so that's the reality that we're starting to live in. So as it were, there's a, a few ripe apples that have, that have already gone a little bit earlier than, than perhaps some others. Um, but this revolt, so there was this growing um, conviction and obviously repulsion to what was being forced on these people um, it found its full expression in what was known as the Scottish National Covenant of 1638. And so we're, we're given a lot of clarity from their experience, but, but all of, like, the whole country, like, if you see, probably nine out of ten, like, it was a huge majority with faithful Protestant um, convictions, a huge majority of them. Um, they all gathered at it's what's called the Glasgow Assembly, or Glasgow Assembly, and, and 21st of November 1638. Huge, like people were just gathering. They, they printed out these uh, copies of this national covenant. They, they spread them around, and just people signed up to them. It was like a huge petition. Um, but it wasn't an ordinary, um, it wasn't an ordinary thing. It was a huge, solemn covenant where they. Uh, bound themselves to be faithful to the Christian religion. And what they did, there was actually some preceding covenants that led up to this one, which is the most famous. Um, But these Scottish men in times of persecution would band together. And so 
so that their neighbor would know what their convictions were. They would both join together in a covenant so that they knew that everyone was walking in one step. They had the support of everyone else. They weren't just on their own. They would, they would make these covenants. Um, but the, the wording of the Scottish National Covenant, and I'm not reading all of it, just a little bit, it says, And therefore from the knowledge and uh, conscience of our duty to God, to our king and country, uh, without any worldly respect or inducement, as far as human infirmity will suffer, so they're saying at cost of anything to our life, <coughs> excuse me, wishing a further measure of the grace of God for this effect, which is literally saying what Phil said, there's a, there's a, a dying grace. They were praying for it. We promise and swear by the great name of our Lord <coughs> um, to continue in the profession and obedience of the said religion. And so they, they bound themselves with all this persecution going on to be faithful. <clears throat> and their sole aim was to maintain the true worship of God. But they, um, the, there was one question in their mind as, as this whole nation gathered together. And it was, it was so clear... <clears throat> they, were, they were trying to settle a question and agree on it and, and work everything out. But they had one clear thing in their mind. They were asking one question and they were asking, who is the head of the Scottish church? Uh, who determines the matters in the spiritual sphere of the church? And so that was for them the heart of the matter. And like I said, it's, really, it's a really clear line. Uh, and so if we ask what was achieved by the Scottish National Covenant, um, the answer is equally clear. Uh, what was achieved was the maintenance of the church within its spiritual sphere. Um, and the Scottish Covenanters, they, <coughs> to them, the church was to be left unmolested. And you might think, well, that's quite strong language. But, but then after all, you think that the church is the bride of Christ. Um, and so God has a jealous love. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but perhaps you're starting to think, you're like, oh, Andrew, you're, you're, man, I think you're way overreacting. You're, um, well, what's happening in Scotland's pretty extreme, and um, our government in New Zealand is hardly doing anything like that, right? Um, and, and so I, I would completely agree with you. Our, our government, and I'll just add one little caveat, I'd say to date, um, our government has encroached far less into the spiritual sphere of the church but what I want you to understand um, is that they already have made a small encroachment onto this very sensitive and precious doctrine of the church. So we're talking about the headship of Christ over his church. And, and I want to explain it to you like this. If I, if I told you to believe that we are saved by faith and the tiniest fraction of good works, we're saved by faith and something else, I think you would... Um, you'd, you'd happily kick me out. I wouldn't be asked to speak again because that's such, a, it's such a, a clear thing. You can't corrupt that doctrine with a little bit. The doctrine is pure at 100%. Um, that's the line. We're saved by faith alone. Um, but what I want you to know is that when our government takes the smallest steps into the sphere of church governance, and I'm talking about specifically if and when and how many people can gather on any given Lord's Day, which they have done, if you accept that as legitimate, you have corrupted the doctrine of the headship of Christ over his church. <clears throat> and because that doctrine as well, it, it stands at 100%. So there's, 
Uh, no other admixture of authority allows that doctrine to stand. Christ and Christ alone as head of his church. And so, you know, there's a, there's a hymn uh, some of us might sing or remember, and it says, um, <coughs> as we say, oh, thank you. It's actually because I'm trying to keep the tears away and stop bursting out like that. <laughs> anyway, because there's... Um, the churches, we say that the song, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. But if we allow the government to be the authority of if and when we meet, this is no longer true. Uh, when the Scots were overtaken by what's called episcopacy, and so episcopacy is um, there's the, the king and there's, he has bishops. So you can just think bishops. So he has his rule over all civil matters. And then over the, the spiritual sphere, he puts bishops. And they're just like the king's men telling the church to do what the king wants. And so episcopacy is just, is just the king, just ruling in, in both spheres. Um, but um, when the Scots were overtaken by episcopacy, they were mortified. And in their words, it was really interesting. Uh, what they said was the royal whim had become the church's one foundation. Um, and so this, this simple question of who is the head of the church is the dividing line and the singular point of clarity that helps us begin to understand how to act in our own situation. I'm not going into all the detail, but that's the starting point of how we start to think through. And so if we rush too quickly into the question of what we should do when the government orders limitations on church gatherings without even thinking about that question... Um, without even stopping to consider if that's even legitimate, then we have already conceded the most important truth. Uh, the first question we need to ask is, who is the head of the church? Who has the authority that determines matters in the spiritual sphere? Who determines if and when the church meets in the first place? And the answer to that critical question is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And, if, and if, if someone was to think, you know, perhaps I, I disagree with that. But then you have to defend how you haven't necessarily conceded the fact that at least sometimes the governing authorities are the head of the church. You'd be forced to sing a hymn, perhaps with these lyrics that said, one of the church's two foundations is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in Ephesians 1 verse 18 to 22... It speaks of Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to the come. It's, like it's, it's everything. He, he couldn't put any more categories in there. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And so at this critical juncture, there's... There should be no debate that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And as it's been well said, this most precious doctrine has sailed down to us on a sea of blood. Uh, it's a doctrine that has come down to the church at immense cost. <laughs> and so from this biblical foundation, when we're wondering about how to biblically navigate government-mandated lockdowns of churches, uh, the first thing we need to ask is, Lord... What would you have us do? That our point of reference is the head of the church. It is not first, first reaction to go to the government. Lord, what would you have us do? <clears throat> and so, but if you can take your minds back to Scotland again, 
Um, there was an event, and I've just skipped over a huge amount of data, but there's, I think we've got another king, Charles II, is probably coming this time, uh, continued to um, press the persecution in a particular direction. Um, but there's what was called the Great Ejection in 1661, 1662. It happened in England, it happened in Scotland, and, and you basically have a, a, a um, what's called the Restoration and a, and a monarch coming in again and completely taking over and losing all those uh, Protestant freedoms. Um, but all of the Protestant ministers were completely ejected out of their churches. Um, so they, were, they just could not function as Protestants, believing what we did. Um, they, were, they were literally kicked out onto the streets um, and, and the government put their little, I don't know what you'd call them, I want to say something nasty, but it's best not to say anything at all, into the, into the churches and pulpits. Um, but one of these men, and so there's a whole line of, of these faithful men, these faithful covenanters. One of them was one man called uh, Richard Cameron. He was uh, exiled earlier on in the persecution, but he returned in October 1679, and he, he went to Holland. And a lot of them went to Europe, and they studied. Um, he was a, a man of a savory gospel spirit and fit to go home and lift the fallen standard. So it was a, it was a, the cause was weak. He was going to encourage these, this persecuted church. Um, and before leaving Holland, he was ordained. And before, uh, so that you imagine them laying hands on this man, and before lifting their hands off Cameron's head, uh, McWard, who is just the person here in Holland, and I imagine that's a mixture of John MacArthur and Mike Ward, um, but McWard, <laughs> as if reading off a mental vision, he, he pathetically, and that doesn't mean ridiculously, that means um, pathetically in this sense is arousing, like an arousing pity. Um, pathetically exclaimed, Here is the head of a faithful minister and servant of Jesus Christ, how shall, who shall lose the same for his master's interest, um, <coughs> excuse me, and shall be set up in public view of the world um, before sun and moon. So that was, uh, he had a pretty clear idea of uh, the sort of ministry he had lying ahead of him. Um, but Cal, uh, sorry, Cameron was mentally given to an idealized conception of Protestantism, um, and I don't think you should read idealized in a negative sense, but in a, in a positive sense, shorn of every defection and innovation uh, and compromise, uh, demanding all for Christ, and a reliant uh, faith. He, was a, he had a patriotic fervor, he had a seer-like instinct, a tender sympathy for the persecuted, uh, and a loyalty to righteousness. Uh, he viewed the moderate as he called them nullifidians, um, because I guess at this time as well there were um, there were some the king would try to he, I think they were called the indulged pastors, so they would um, be I don't know given some benefit to be tempted back into ministry. I think because all the churches were empty, um, they also made it uh, illegal to not be in the state churches. They would keep a role, uh, and they would hunt and track you down if you didn't go to the state sanctioned churches. Um, so it was it was horrific. Um, but he believed in his personal union with Christ, uh, with whom he had made an individual covenant. Um, his influence was indelible, and people noted that the rousing power of his preaching. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but eventually, after leading the wandering church, as they were called, he was tracked down, and he eventually did die. Um, I think I'm going to fall apart here. His uh, head and hands. Uh, and some others were lopped off uh, and borne away in a sack. 
and they were as evidence for procuring a reward. Um, so they offered a great sum of money uh, to, for people to help track him down. Um, the raiding party, they, I think they had, um, they had rights, I can't remember what it was called, but they could just land on your house. I think they called it taking quarters. So this little um, squadron or army would just land on your house, take whatever they wanted. Uh, they went to one such house and they um, rolled out the martyrs' heads and played football with them. And it was so horrific uh, that the lady in the house fainted at the sight of the brutality. It was, they, they, it was just a very special time. Um, but the, um, the head and hands of Cameron uh, were thrown into the cell in a prison uh, with his father. And he just blessed the Lord. Um, but there was um, just brutal... I'm just literally turning my notes over here. Um, there's just brutal uh, what they did to them. So they would um, cut off hands. They would put them in a pulley. Um, they'd be dropped, hung, cut out their hearts. They'd be spitted on. And, and, um, and a lot worse. But the, um, the incredible thing is some people would be critical of these men, and so we can look at the character of them and think maybe um, how did they react, and, and this, is, this is really incredible because um, the covenanters were in the most cases um, transmuted in their sufferings, meaning changed into... Um, an ineffable delight and glory for Jesus' sake, rather than uh, into yearnings for revenge. <coughs> and so I'll just read uh, some of their reactions. Um, one of the covenanters dying testimony, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry, they asserted, I have been loyal and do recommend it to, to be obedient to high powers in the land. <coughs> so... Um, Retaliation was no duty, according to another. We are to be submissive to the commands of superiors, uh, not to imitate their practice. Um, another records um, that there was something nobler than fanatic superstition, which is what some people would describe them as, just these mad, uh, stubborn fanatics. Um, but there was something more nobler than that um, that underlay the life and morale of the martyrs who kissed the rope that hanged them. A common confession um, that I just read repeatedly was they would say, if I had a hundred lives, I'd easily lay them all down for Christ. Um, it was just common. And another wrote, um, and this just blows my mind, <coughs> none know the marrow and sweetness uh, that is to be had in suffering and contending for Christ, but them that has felt it. So it's just, just incredible. Um, <coughs> sorry. Another confessed that the pleasant time that ever I had was when I was joined with that suffering remnant while hunted as partridges upon the mountains and following the persecuted gospel. How incredible is that? So that was their, um, I guess, the way they responded to their persecution. Uh, eyewitnesses said of another victim that he suffered with a, a constancy that amazed all people. 
He seemed all the while that um, as if he were in a lofty, rapturous trance and insensible of what was being done to him. When his hands were cut off, he asked like one unconcerned if his feet were to be cut off likewise. Um, so they were just, I think that is a dying grace um, to be that brave. Um, he wrote a confession before he died, which most of them didn't. They might be given a day or two days before they were um, killed and sitting in the prison. Uh, so one wrote a, a, a confession before he died where he said, If the free grace of God be glorified in me, ought not all to praise him. And so to them, death was sweeter than life. Another, another martyr in his death, he said, When the storms blow the hardest, the smiles of my Lord were the sweetest. <laughs> this is going to take me about an hour and a half. <laughs> the only peace, the only peace in troubled Scotland was those that died as martyrs for Christ. Isn't that an incredible time to live? It was such a troubled place. Uh, so these were uh, faithful Christian men. Um, a man by the name of Cargill was another um, famous covenanter. <coughs> as he, as he uh, mounted the ladder, as to be hung, he said, The Lord knows I go up this ladder with less fear than ever I entered the pulpit to preach. <laughs> <laughs> there was a man by the name of Claverhouse. And uh, it's, it's tough because it reminds you of a meat cleaver. Um, but it's Claverhouse, and he was a wicked man. So you imagine him... Uh, he was just in chapter after chapter persecuting Christians. So he would have, maybe this is one thing you've heard of the Covenanters, is, is a fleet of dragoons, you know, the horses. So Claverhouse would chase around on with his dragoons and he stalked the country attempting the obliteration of dissent. That's to have a different view um, by means of torture and other brutalities. And so he was, uh, and it was said that he was a butcher and not a soldier. And uh, tellingly, he planned to stop. I find this fascinating as well. We start to see the importance of uh, things. Uh, tellingly, he planned to stop nonconformity. Guess where he tried to stop it? In the pulpit. If he could get those guys, he planned to stop nonconformity in the pulpit, uh, which is why uh, pulpits need to stay open. And so at this time, when public life was rotten to the core, uh, some dreamed of establishing a colony in Carolina, uh, in New England, to escape the tyranny uh, and to live in the undisturbed enjoyment of political and religious liberty. And so I think we've all heard, you know, how America was established, or even how New Zealand, some of the principles that were there. But that was the sentiment and the conditions that they were fleeing from. Uh, so these were the things that they wanted to avoid when they set constitutions in America and set up a new country. Um, people were already planning and talking. They called them uh, secret societies that were starting together. Um, but you get a sense of what's behind the establishment of countries like America as people are fleeing um, from such a wicked uh, tyranny. Uh, but after Richard Cameron, there was always another to stand in the spot. <coughs> and so another was by the name of James uh, Renwick. Again, he was abroad. He returned from his uh, studies to lift the banner of the covenant uh, and he was—he sort of questioned it at first. So he wasn't on board originally, you know. He was a bit sort of more in the middle. Um, but the sight of dying Cargill, so—and there's some Scottish words here. It says him. I think that means moved him. 
Um, but you have to, it's actually the hardest book I've read because the Scottish write really funny. But it's, the, it's so commoved him. Uh, Renwick, uh, that his last doubt disappeared and his revulsion against the horrid despotism cruelly exhibited that day was followed by the stern resolve of the patriot to fight Christ and liberty. Um, he and his devotees met, as I just mentioned, in secret society. So they had little secret meetings. Uh, he received the call to be uh, minister to the remnant. And so they, they called this, this church the remnant. Um, you know, they banned, I think, gatherings in houses of more than four people or something. So you couldn't do anything. Um, their policies were called like a dragnet. They literally just ran it through every inch of society to catch uh, any form of dissent. They passed, um, they passed uh, restrictive speech legislation, which we think is, is coming as well. Um, and so you see at the beginning of the persecution all those similar um, little, little, you know, just little tinklings and changing to um, legislation was being made, but they were doing that so they could start to, um, to catch these people. Um, but anyway, this man, uh, James Ren Renwick, um, he received the call to be the minister to the remnant, um, and a great multitude assembled to hear his first sermon in the fields. And so they called them field preachers. And they would have these uh, illegal conventicles, and they would sort of gather. And, so, and some of them were up to 10,000 people. Um, some of them were little, um, they, but they had traveling preachers that would come. People would gather, and uh, they would sit there with pitchforks and arms and swords and whatever they could have. If there was only you know, two or three um, military, they could defend themselves quite easily. Um, so it was, a, it was just an incredible time. Um, but obviously, if a, if a full-blown army would find them and hunt them down, they would be uh, ended, obviously, pretty quickly as well. Um, but he discoursed his sermon to these people was, Comfort ye, comfort me, my people, um, from Isaiah 26. And so he began his, uh, they called it his vagabond ministry. Um, so if some of us pastors, uh, you know, actually, this doesn't reflect me at all, but if I know some pastors find their ministries pretty tough, but I think they're... Vagabond ministry was a whole new level. Um, but he preached with a, um, a fleet, fresh horse standing bridled at his hand. So he was ready to go. So imagine that. He's got a horse, and he makes sure it's fresh and ready to run. And he's preaching his sermon, and he would get on it and take off. And so um, he preached in constant danger and could tell. Um, and so he just has many stories of, they called them, hairbreadth hair escapes. Um, so people were, like I said, they were after the pastors and the preachers. Um, to try to stop it all. Um, but hundreds brought their children to him for baptism. And so imagine they are, they are Presbyterian. That's obviously what they believe. But again, baptism uh, was illegal unless it was in the, the state churches. Um, and so this fearless and cultured evangelical preacher became a favorite spirited guide to the wandering church. Um, he was never led into excess of zeal. So, I mean, that would be a temptation to be so angry and full of zeal that you'd make, make mistakes that end. Um, but he was, he was a balanced guy, so strong, uh, steadfast, but still balanced. Um, and he was daily looking out to be killed. He had no fear. His testimony to the Reformed Church and faith, uh, he vowed that he would seal it with his blood. So he, they, they literally came back expecting uh, to die at some point. So they would, they would minister for as long as they could before they were killed. Um, but at this time, which was approaching 1685, and so that particular year is called the killing time, <coughs> um, many were sentenced to death. And so they developed, uh, after the uh, restrictive speech legislation, they started 
um, passing more legislation, which became tighter and tighter. Uh, and so they would go around to everybody, men, women, and children. Uh, these dragoons would turn up, and they would, they would literally, um, they passed this, um, this act, but they had to um, make a profession, and they had to say the simple words, God save the king. And we might think, well, that's harmless, especially if they can assent to civil authority. But, but there was a meaning to it. And so they understood it. To, if they were to say, God save the king, they would be acknowledging the absolute authority of the king in all causes. Uh, and so that's like saying the king is the head of the church. And so again, that was what they used to specifically target the Christians. Would they confess that? Would they give up that doctrine, the headship of the church? And they would literally let them off if they confessed it. Um, and so would they acknowledge the absolute authority of the king in all causes? But do you know what happened? All of that persecution, they're, they're going for the church, hunting them down, and the result of these executions was the reverse of what the rulers expected, and that the fearless joy of these victims thrilled the people with fresh enthusiasm, which the exterminators dreaded. It just made them more zealous. It was just, you just, you think, no, no, that wouldn't happen. But isn't that an incredible thing? Um, James Nisbet, another man, uh, when dying, wrote, Now I am brought hither this day to lay down my life for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, and notice what it's for. And for asserting him to be head and king in his own house. So I just keep repeating that, and that's repeated through their testimony. It's all about the headship of Christ. It's all about does the government have the right to, to say what we do and how we do it in the church. Um, that was, I hope you're picking up the theme there. I think I'm sure you are. Um, so it's important to remember, um, that, and as well, that they were dying as a witness for a persecuted Christ. So they are standing for true religion. They will not let the government be head over the church, and that would sum up everything that they were standing for. Uh, in the words of another, John Patton, he died as a Christian warrior and reformer, uh, willing to die as a protest against the horrid usurpation of our Lord's prerogative and crown right. And it's the same thing. So that word prerogative, it's like, who has the prerogative to do this? It's the same matter uh, of the crown right. Um, and so that's the very clear line in the sand. So I think when, when hopefully when you leave, you're like, I can be a little bit more clearer and thinking through what's going on in our day. There is a line that we can think through and measure against. Um, but to get a small glimpse of how many people were being persecuted, uh, it was written that the prisoners were now so crammed that the council petitioned the king and got consent to transport the less obnoxious prisoners. So I guess the ones that were less important, you know, like the... I guess the pastors, leaders of these sort of uh, arranging the meetings were obviously more active people, were, were obviously uh, reserved for special deaths. Um, they had things called the iron boot. They would literally torture them. They'd put their foot in, in this metal boot, put a wedge in, and then sledgehammer it in, and it would crush their leg. They would say it would squeeze the marrow out of their bones. And so some of the guys, um, and they were literally trying to get them to deny Christ as the head of the church, uh, and they wouldn't. And they would hobble down to the executions with, with like maimed and broken bodies, proudly and happily to die for Christ. But the um, another really interesting thing, and I, I um, but anyway, sorry, yeah, to get a glimpse of how many people were being per persecuted, it's written that the prisoners were now so crammed uh, that the council petitioned the king and got consent to transport the less obnoxious prisoners to the American plantations. 
That's slavery. Do you get that? Uh, so, um, so maybe our school teachers might not have ever told us that before, but there were shiploads of white Europeans or Scottish people shipped in terrible conditions as slaves and that they were a, uh, there was a significant slave trade set up in Scotland. Isn't that incredible? Hundreds of them, shiploads of them. They went to, um, I think it was Virginia, Barbados, and... Um, and it might have, yeah, just the same, same sort of places, but there was literally hundreds and shiploads of Scottish slaves. And so I do find that ironic when we think about who is oppressed in our society, um, because we have just as much um, oppression as Protestant Christians and Europeans, which, which some of us, not all of us are, but it's, it's just humanity, isn't it? All of mankind is sinful uh, and expresses their, their sinful nature in different ways at different times. Um, but yeah, the sight was common of gangs of miserable, bedraggled prisoners, ministers, men, women, and even children without direction, being driven like bestial by pitiless soldiery through wintry tempests to the state prisons, just literally herding up people, um, gathering them up, herding them up, and taking them off to prison. Uh, and just like the direction um, our society is heading, it was written, and, and again, the parallel is uncanny. It said justice had passed into insanity. And like when we think of the upside-down morality and the, the thinking that just seems so broken in our day, uh, justice had passed into insanity. And so this was the nefarious system under which they groaned. And so while the executions and the so-called trials um, was how persecution began, it dragged... Sorry, degraded further, and authority was given to kill on the spot dissenters where, um, and, it, and this is kind of sad as well, before two witnesses. So they take a biblical principle um, to justify that if there's a couple of soldiers there, they can on the spot just start executing people. Um, so they'd be marching around, gathering up families, hearing news of who was going to a conventicle, and, and it was just, um, it was terrible. So they just gave more and more and more power. Um, to these people because they were more and more and more mad and desired to stamp out um, Protestantism from and these Christians from Scotland. Uh, the author, uh, they authorised and gave powers to um, burn houses, seize goods and carry off uh, for the plantations all unsatisfactory in, uh, individuals over 12 years of age. Um, so that's, that's what they were doing. And some were even paid and employed by the authorities uh, to betray the conventicles. So they would pay people. They'd call them spies. So they were meeting and gathering, know that, knowing that spies, I think they called them wasps, um, were, were sneaking into their meetings to report them. Um, and, and like I said, these gatherings were, were considered the remnant of the covenanting church. And so all were made to swear, uh, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, the, ab, uh, the abjuration oath. And this oath made it swearer's own um, that the church to be the department of the state. So another, another piece of legislation, this is what you had to ask them. Is the church a department of the state? It was just getting worse and worse and worse. But isn't that theme so clear? Who is the head of the church? On the 6th of February, King Charles II breathed his last. And I read that and I was actually quite happy to, to read that. Um, but, you, yeah, but there's a part of you that actually thinks he got away with a lot, but we know that he will stand before the Lord and he will not get away from anything. Uh, the king tellingly declined 
uh, minister of the church. Um, so at his deathbed, he declined to minister in the so-called state church, and people suspected, didn't they, early on, that it was, was sort of smelt like popery. Um, and so he declined to minister of the church, and he preferred a priest to be at his deathbed. And so Charles made his confession to him. He was reconciled, received the blessed sacrament. That's the Catholic one. Uh, this acceptance was not the mere timid recogni- uh, recognition of the Church of Rome by a dying man, for the act was in accord with the king's long-concealed opinion regarding popery. His brother attested to two papers in the king's own hand. Uh, therein Charles avowed his belief that there is one church, that, wa- uh, that none can be that church but that which is called the Roman Catholic Church. And so the, the, this was the suspicion by some early in his life and in his son, um, his son's life as well, as, as these minor tweaks and political um, changes were made. But as he concealed it well, uh, what was only a conspiracy or a speculation at first was established in reality at the end of his life. He was a Catholic that was persecuting Protestant Christians. Uh, so James is obviously, James VII was proclaimed king um, armed conventicles, societies, secret schools um, of Renwick. Uh, we talked about Renwick a little in the past. Has, um, they still increased in number and influence. On May the 2nd, um, 1865, uh, the Wigtown martyrs were drowned. Uh, this is two ladies. Uh, one was an older lady, one was um, 18. <coughs> um, I guess they're quite famous as well. Maybe you've heard of them, but... Um, they wouldn't confess Christ as, um, as the state as head of the church, that abjuration oath. Um, they put two stakes in the ground, um, and the tide would come in at the beach. And so the older lady uh, died first. Um, they made the younger lady watch it. Um, they said, there's no hope for her. She's so stubborn, she's just going to die. But they pleaded with this young 18-year-old girl to deny Christ, and she didn't. So they drowned them. Um, and their offence was non-conformity. And so uh, Renwick was called the only minister in Scotland at this time. So you can, uh, maybe you can think, do you think the church could be extinguished completely? And it almost would feel like to them uh, that it could. I have no idea of the time, sorry. Um, I think we're getting towards the end anyway. Um... But he was the only minister in Scotland. Um, The king introduced a new decree of toleration for Presbyterians to be allowed to worship in private houses and for Catholics. And so can you imagine the relief of toleration coming through with this new king? And you're like, oh my goodness, they can worship again finally. And so you'd think that that would be good, right? There's a but. But it was on condition that acceptors signed an oath acknowledging the absolute authority of the king. How could you tease them? Like you're literally offering toleration, but the one thing, they called them irreconcilables. They called them so stubborn. They just want to practice their religion and worship God. And so there was just this teasing. But you notice as this act of toleration was made, there was the condition for the um, Protestants, which they couldn't sign, but the Catholics at the same time were also allowed back in, as it were. And so it opened the door for Catholicism while still shutting the door to Christianity. And obviously the king, uh, and it happened over multiple generations, it wasn't just one king, it was the continued steady direction of uh, three kings within this period of time, um, heading all on the same track. Um, So there was a condition. So Renwick and his party 
consistently rejected the truth. Uh, and here we start to see that King James artfully was concealing his deep design to reestablish that ancient or Catholic uh, faith. Um, and so in this new toleration, the Romanists obtained power to erect places of worship. So the Roman church is suddenly being established again. Uh, many blessed the king for the late, refreshing, and unexpected favor. And so there were a number that came back. But do you know what they denied? They, they, had, they had given full control to the state over the church. Um, and so there was, now there were two parties, obviously one that was still faithful and one that had um, compromised on, on the one principle they were standing for. Um, but I guess comfort is a, something that's quite appealing in a, in a time of persecution. Um, but the, and at the same time, it's quite interesting, the Episcopal party, so I think again, that's, that's king rules over state, king puts bishops and rules over the church, so it's just bishops. Um, the Episcopal party, when this Toleration Act was passed, were incensed, um, and, and you can trace the subsequent disestablishment of their church to this point. And, and I like this because we, can, we get a reminder to what happens to any church that relies on any government for its survival. The government can turn you off, and the, um, sorry, the government can turn you on, and the government can just as easily turn you off. Like, and we don't rely on the government that way. Like I said, we draw that clean line. They do not rule over the church. Um, there were reports that some had um, in Rome seen the original text binding James, that's King James, to other popish sovereigns to extirpate, which means to totally eradicate the Protestants. And so there were secret high-level uh, agreements between kings where they had an agenda and they were working uh, to play it out. Um, and obviously, only after history plays out do you get a window clearly into exactly what was going on behind the scenes. But the long-continued tragedy of a proud and pious people panting for freedom was finally about to reach its final act. And so we are getting to a bit of a conclusion. But the, um, the long uh, tract of barbarity was to have its consummation on the scaffold in the offering of an almost spotless victim to the insatiable... Uh, the word here is Moloch, M-O-L-O-C-H. And I looked at it and I'm like, those Scots are confusing me again. I was like, is that Molech, like the Canaanite deity? Or is that... And I looked it up on Google and it said it's an ugly lizard or a Canaanite deity. And I'm like, I don't know which one it is, but they both work. <laughs> but they were, he was going to be a victim to this um, ugly lizard who sat on the throne under the delusion that he ruled the fate of the covenanters. And that oblation, that's an old word for offering... Uh, so would think, they would think of Christ's offering or his oblation on the cross uh, was James Rennick, so that, that remaining minister. He was captured and examined in 1688, and it was found that he was an irreconcilable opponent of the king and his government, although he dismissed all antinomian and anti-magisterial principles. So he was still, like I said, he would still uh, hold to Romans 13 in those first few verses and submit to governing authorities in the sphere of the government, but he just would not let them step on uh, ruling the church. And obviously only one doom was possible. He was steadfast and immovable. Uh, he believed himself to be an instrument of God's, in God's hand for the redemption of Scot Scotland. <laughs> he says, I'm persuaded, said he to his mother. So again, before he dies, they had a, a few moments. Um, that my death will do more good than my life for many years has done. Uh, so Renwick died one of the noblest martyrs for religion. And, uh, and so there's many of these men at um, a cemetery, which is called Greyfriars Cemetery. 
which I think I could be wrong, I think that's the same place where the, there was the major meeting for signing of the um, Scottish National Covenant. Covenant. Um, he was a cultured mind capable of a comprehensive grasp of revealed truth and of political principles, uh, which expressed itself in a gracious, thrilling oratory, which is quite a neat, uh, neat way to think of his preaching. Uh, his exalted aims were in keeping with uh, his prescience, or his looking to what would happen in the future, uh, which found expression in these words. He said, there is a storm coming that shall try your foundation. And I, I, I don't know, but I do wonder if, um, if that's the same thing in our day. There's a storm coming that shall try your foundation. He says, I die in the faith that thou, <coughs> meaning God, will not leave Scotland, but that thou will make the blood of thy witnesses the seed of the church. Have you heard that line before? I think it was him that originated it. Maybe he got it from somewhere else, but it's the first time I've read a, um, somebody directly saying it. So he said that at his death. Um, he died a, a witness for the incommunicable prerogative of Jehovah. And so I remember when I was younger, I used to deliver papers to a place called the Communicable Diseases Centre. And I think they, they obviously haven't done their job lately in the last couple of years because there's been a communicable disease. But this is the incommunicable. It cannot be passed or transferred. An incommunicable prerogative of Jehovah, and he means over his church. And so that phrase illuminates the religious war Scotland waged for 130 years. And so I've reinforced it every second page, but this was the root of the matter. The number of sufferers for the covenants by imprisonment, banishment, and death was approximately 18,000 people. Um, and that's, that's the seriously persecuted, not, not all the other things that, you know, that's the, um, that's the slaves, that's the, the murders and the executions and the imprisonments. Uh, William of Orange, uh, this, the secret society had been making plans and corresponding and talking to people um, so in 1688 is what's called the Glorious Revolution, 1688, 1689, and this is where the history kind of ends. Uh, William of Orange uh, landed an army from Holland and some British soldiers of 14,000 men, and so they had relief turned up. <coughs> and the king absconded and fled. And I read that and I was really happy. And the, the popish king was gone. And so a wave of violence. And so in reaction to all this, the people do go quite crazy. A wave of violence spread over Scotland as if the worst passions of a rude enslaved people had been unleashed and got beyond control. But we want to look as well, be like, well, what about the covenanters? What was their attitude? And the society men or the covenanters considered this disorderly method. They called it rabbling out. They would literally go into like a Catholic church, and just throw them out. And almost like they're in the Old Testament, um, casting down the high places. They were, they were literally just throwing people out of buildings and, and stripping buildings. Um, but the society men and covenanters considered this disorderly method of rubbling out to be improper. Uh, and so in the surprising restraint of the Presbyterians was noted. How could these sufferers of an unjustifiable persecution be expected to forgive and not unleash revenge? Uh, it speaks a woman with braid, uh, branded cheek. They would take a hot iron and mark their faces. Um, so sometimes they wouldn't imprison them or kill them. They would just mark their cheeks. Uh, men of the one ear. And so I haven't told you of all the countless times. They would slice people's ears off and mark them. Uh, sons and daughters of those who had parents hunted and killed. Um, so think of the survivors, how they would feel downstream of knowing these things, who for years lived on moors and sheltered in um, hidey holes in the hills. 
Um, but the covenanters generally were averse from vindicating their gospel principles uh, in the pains of others. So they were restrained from, uh, and in a very large degree, I mean, you might be able to find one or two, um, but in a very large degree, they were restrained from vindicating themselves. On the 22nd of January, 1689, and I love that when you think of the Second London Baptist Confession. I was told, actually, it was written originally in uh, 77, um, but, but then, obviously, it becomes sort of more formal. But the condition, you couldn't be a Baptist in that context. There, there was no place for it. So only after these events played out could, could Baptists really flourish and thrive and, and hold Baptist convictions. And so I think I find that a fascinating part because I think sometimes we just look back to church history and think, what did they believe then? What did they believe then? Oh, that was orthodox. Um, but as a, there's, there's certain things we need to consider for Baptist history that there were times when it just wasn't feasible to be a Baptist. Uh, so we may see gaps in church history. Um, but anyway, I'm off target. The... Um, um, yeah, so the Lords in 1689 um, resolved that uh, James II, having violated the fundamental laws and having withdrawn himself out of the kingdom, had abdicated uh, the government and that the throne had thereby become vacant. The crown of England was offered to William and Mary. That's the, the people that invaded. They took the throne uh, with the army uh, and they became joint sovereigns and sovereignty thus became the result of a parliamentary vote and the theory of divine right was exploded. And so what just happened there was a huge moment in the history of the Western world and how we understand politics and government. Instead of the king being the law and above the law, now parliament and the legislators were put above and all the people were subservient to the, to the law. So the law is king, not the king is the law. Uh, and that um, is what we live downstream from. That's the freedom that we enjoy. So we look back kind of knowing that there was something in Christian history that affected the freedom that we have now. And now I hope you can start to put your finger on it a little more and be like, there was men like these that, that won us those freedoms. Uh, so by this uh, resolution, the political dogmas of Knox, Buchanan and Melville, they were the early, I don't think we covered them, they were the early covenanters. And the ecclesiastical doctrines of Henderson, Guthrie, uh, we, these are the later ones. We looked at Cargill, Cameron and Renwick, some of these uh, later covenanters. Um, they received the national imprimatur, which means the national or the authoritative approval. And so soon the Protestant dissenters in England were satisfied by what was called the Toleration Act. And that's the moment. Um, and actually, do you know, in 1689, there's also a, a, a British bill, and I think I've forgotten what it's called, but it is the Bill of Rights, 1689. That's the year. Uh, so you get all the... Um, rights of individuals and, and that kind of thinking that we enjoy now downstream from these men that bravely stood and, and, and eventually won uh, those things that we enjoy. It was 1689 as well. Uh, but this Toleration Act was obviously significant and the author writes, uh, Prelacy, which is the king uh, in that sort of setup, had arrived at the greatest height of arrogance and pride, behold it thrown down <coughs> from the top of its grandeur. And so it was, it was completely um, thrown down. And so political changes were a fresh bud on the old stock, uh, planted by Knox, watered by the tears of Melville, and nourished by the blood of the martyrs. That's, <coughs> that's what we live downstream of uh, politically uh, and 
Christianly, I guess, is if that's a word I can use. Um, so that's the, the fruit of freedom that they won. Everything about, like, and that's what's so sad, I think, to think of uh, Canada and the United States and New Zealand and Australia with the direction we're going. Uh, they were fighting to come out of darkness, and we are watching our society go back into darkness. The exact same things. It's a, it's a very... Uh, the trajectory doesn't look good. Um, but they had due regards to the rights of minor- minorities was established. And so we start hearing that talk now and toleration now and equality now. And, and they're, do- they're getting the exact opposite direction. But anyway, the Supremacy Act was it rescinded, uh, which had made Charles II, it rescinded his supreme authority in all causes. That was finally gone. Um, and that act had been at the root of all the distempers and sufferings. Um, and so the pastors evicted in 1661. That, you know, they'd all been kicked out and ejected. They were all finally restored. They could come back into church. They could preach. Uh, the church was established again. Uh, the genuine covenanters from first to last uh, never resolved uh, from those definite principles on which the Reformed churches in Scotland were founded. Uh, these principles, in fine, were the absolute authority of the word of God over all men, the exclusive jurisdiction of the church in spiritual concerns, the exclusive power of the ruler in civil affairs only. And so and um, the various covenants were, were simply republications of the fundamental principles of the reformers. Um, and so there was an English historian, his name was Freud, after years of labor spent among historical records and unassailable state documents, Um, He also discovered, um, so that he was constrained to acknowledge the place of the covenanters among the benefactors of mankind uh, in these terms. He said the covenanters fought the fight and won the victory, and then, and not till then, uh, came the David Humes with their essays on miracles, the Adam Smiths with their political economies, and steam engines, and railroads, and political institutions, and all the blessed fruits of liberty. And so hearing the uh, Scottish Covenanters and uh, when our government assumes authority over the church and demands things like if and when and how many people can gather on any given Lord's Day, like I said, which they have done, I think all I want to say is that should send a shiver down our spines. It really should. Uh, We should be awake to the clear line that has just been crossed Uh, The government has not been given the authority by God to dictate what happens in the ecclesiastical sphere. Uh, So I hope that's reinforcing that that concept of sphere sovereignty that the other men have been talking about. Um, If you accept that as legitimate, you have corrupted the doctrine of the headship of Christ over his church. And sadly, many Christians have already conceded um, this ground. They have, in effect, opened up the door of the church and the crowbar of the state has been slipped in. Uh, And while while it may not appear to be a serious problem now, they can wrench open the door of the church at any time they please. You've given them the keys. You've given them the authority. You've said they're the one that makes the decisions. And so as Christians, I think we need to think carefully through these matters. Um, And so I guess we do. We pray that we will own Christ as head of the church no matter what the cost. Yeah, so...
thanks for um, taking the time and coming. I hope that was an encouragement to you. Um, I do fear that the Word of God can't... Um, Oh, sorry, the Spirit can't you know, work with the Word like it normally does in an expositional sermon, but as church history, I think it's an important thing, hopefully helpful. And um, man, I think we do. We live in special times, and I think we can learn. Like I think they just said in the Q&A, I'd encourage you to read some church history, and hopefully we can be more clear ourselves. But thanks. Yeah.